Hi, I'm Don Cameron. And I'm Kat Lovericks. We are your co-hosts for an Intellectual Property Law podcast series brought to you by Breskin and Parr LLP. You can find our episodes at breskinparr.com slash podcasts, and there you can access all the episodes and additional information on each topic. So, Kat, we're back again for this podcast on the same topic as our last podcast, and that is... Cannabis regulation in Canada and the U.S. Right. So we have a, an interview by our partner, Jennifer McKenzie, of a, a U.S. lawyer who we'll tell you more about in a moment, both of whom are highly knowledgeable and know a lot about the regulation of cannabis, both here and in the United States. And the interview was so interesting, we decided to give you part one last time, and today you're going to hear part two. Yeah, we're fortunate to hear from Jennifer McKenzie of our Toronto office here at Breskin and Parr, as well as Colorado-based attorney Garrett Graff. He's been recognized by the National Law Journal as a cannabis law trailblazer. He specializes in representation of clients in both the marijuana and industrial hemp industries, his practice involves corporate and M&A work, uh, real estate, regulatory compliance, FDA and FTC compliance, intellectual property protection, and civil and commercial litigation. And I think that is nice because cannabis has been legal in Colorado for a few years, so I think there's something we Canadians can learn from the American experience. Mm -hmm. And Jennifer McKenzie is a partner here in our Toronto office. She co-chairs our cannabis group and is head of our regulatory advertising and mar marketing group. Jennifer has extensive experience in trademark prosecution and enforcement practice and also has extensive experience with regulatory advertising and marketing law. She represents clients in a wide range of industries from prepackaged consumer goods to regulated products and, of course, in the industry of cannabis. Jennifer spoke with Garrett from his office in Denver, Colorado. So you, you mentioned that some um, producers of cannabis uh, are sort of take a maverick or renegade approach, and I think that the prevailing view in Canada, um, certainly expressed at, at the many conferences I've attended, is that they, they want to be compliant with law and that they don't believe that it's promotion that is going to win at the end of the day, but rather education. Is, is that something that is echoed among certain producers in the States? I would say generally so. I mean, I, I think you know the industry is trending again. As you start, you know, looking at where Colorado was five years ago, we now have you know ten plus states with adult use regulation, thirty over thirty states with medical marijuana regulation, and each of those states that newly come online is learning, uh, you know, from the uh, uh, the things that have been done right and the mistakes made in other states. And I think the industry has responded to that favorably, understanding that you know as we plot along that instead of uh, uh, trying to shoot from the hip, there's great value in terms of being able to definitively establish uh, some of these things uh, and, and have some certainty going forward. So when I asked you about whether the law in Colorado had relaxed, um, one of the things that you mentioned uh, was branding and how a, a package and label looks. And I, I want to get into another prohibition under the federal law, um, both at the promotion and packaging labeling um, which is that you cannot depict a person, character, animal, whether real or fictional. And Health Canada made it clear that we are not going to harken back to the early tobacco days of having a Joe the Camel or, or Marlboro Man. And certainly, um, just anecdotally, when I walked into uh, a retail outlet in Colorado, I noticed a very palpable difference between uh, how the labels of cannabis look there as compared to here. So the, is that something that's relaxed and you do see um, 
like the use of characters and animals is not prohibited? Uh, that again is a, a function that is regulated on a state-by-state -state basis. Right. So every state may be different uh, with respect to that particular issue. That said, I will say, you know, that has specifically been an issue of heightened sensitivity in the past several years, both in Colorado and elsewhere. As I noted, uh, you know, uh, since 2014, Colorado has become more restrictive uh, uh, in terms of being sensitive to that issue. Oh, and more restrictive, not have lenient? The shape or do not have, uh, you know, any various uh, aspects or components of the product that are enticing to children. So. In terms of what the specific regulation is, it's hard to say on a state-by-state -state basis. I think the general sentiment that states do not want products to be enticing to children is a better ba a blanket statement. And then the states figure out what that looks like right. in their individual state. How do we preclude enticement of children? Some, sometimes that might be colors. Sometimes that might be shapes. Uh, you know, that could take you know be the form of animals or uh, the use of cartoonish. Uh, pictures on out, outer packaging or the use of fruits. Uh, you know, so, so there's a, a, a number of different ways in which states might regulate that issue, but I do think that the sentiment generally is agreed upon of not wanting to entice children. So I think I misunderstood you then when you were talking about the laws that have changed over time, and let's take Colorado as an example. Did the, did the labeling laws become more stringent or more relaxed in the five years that it, recreational cannabis has been legal? Uh, certainly. As to this specific issue, they became more stringent. In other instances, okay. they be became more relaxed. But in this case, uh, there was a recognized need between 2014 and I want to say 2016 that we needed greater uh, restriction or, or uh, clarity on what is or is not allowed. And so in the years since, uh, Colorado has specifically prohibited uh, some of those various components, such as the shapes of the actual products or, uh, you know, uh, made additional requirements uh, on the outer packaging to better prevent the enticement of children. What was the catalyst for that change? Was there an event or an issue? Uh, at times, yes. I mean, you know, generally speaking, there aren't, aren't a ton of them, but there have been instances where uh, children are being reported, uh, you know, there was an increase of uh, usage of products by children uh, in hospitals. You know, so basically, uh, the hospital would report data on how, uh, how many children are uh, uh, coming to the hospital for treatment and for what. Uh, and so that there were certainly issues like that, uh, as well as then, you know, there were other instances in the news of, uh, you know, whether it be children using these products or the mislabeling of serving sizes. Uh, you know, creating dangerous situations where, you know, for example, looking at a brownie, you know, if it's just a regular brownie, you and I might eat the whole brownie. But when it's a highly potent uh, uh, brownie that contains a high potency of THC per serving, you, you're only supposed to have one-eighth of that brownie. And so various restrictions on labeling to make sure it's clear to the consumer uh, that first, this is for adult use only, uh, and second, uh, what is it that's being taken to make sure that, that uh, uh, it's, you know, the suggested serving size is adhered to as, as best as possible. And is, does adult use track the alcohol consumption so it's 21 across all states? Or does that vary as well? Uh, it varies state to state. In Colorado, uh, it's 21. Uh, medical is 18 uh, unless you have a card, uh, uh, a medical patient card for a child under the age of 18, in which case you need uh, adult supervision. Uh, so, uh, again, that varies state by state as well. Um, so let's talk about another specifically prohibited um, manner of promoting, which is lifestyle promotion. 
Uh, the Cannabis Act prohibits the presentation of a cannabis brand in a way that associates or evokes a positive or negative emotion ab about a way of life, such as one that is glamorous or exciting or daring. Um, is there a similar prohibition in the states? Not generally so. Uh, I'm not aware of any specific regulation on that issue in Colorado uh, and in many other states. I mean, oftentimes, you know, glamour, recreation, excitement, vitality, risk, or daring. That's called marketing. Yes, exactly. Uh, right? And so I think, uh, so I, I think in many uh, cases, the states have recognized that they can't preclude that level, you know, they can't be that overly onerous in terms of the regulation to preclude those sorts of positive or negative emotions. Um, certainly there are controls placed upon marketing, you know, the placement of billboards, the number of signs you can have, things of that nature. But in terms of, uh, you know, what that actually depicts, um, you know, so long as uh, there's not something inappropriate, uh, you know, certainly there's restrictions on, on uh, you know, some content, but not for purposes of glamour or recreation. So you, you very easily would see uh, products, you know, uh, for example, a product being used, uh, you know, in recovery of athletic uh, training, right? You know, long-distance runners and things like that, and that would be uh, uh, that could, you know, evoke a positive emotion, um, as was listed here in the Cannabis Act. Uh, but that would generally not be precluded in many states in the U.S. So you mentioned that claims of efficacy are not permitted on labels. So, so how is it that a company is able to? Um, advertise a product for something like sports recovery? Well, I mean, that, that's a very fine line at times, and sometimes that, that line is, is certainly crossed and simply unregulated. But also in terms of sports recovery, uh, you know, that there are, uh, there are certain schools of thought in terms of what constitutes a disease claim, you know, making of a, uh, you know, treatment of an actual medical condition like cancer versus simple general wellness and well-being. Uh, and that's, that's a theme that is uh, also mirrored uh, at the federal level for general conventional food products and or supplement products. Right. You can make certain uh, claims, limited claims with respect to general well-being and general wellness while not being able to say cancer, pain, epilepsy, things like that. So uh, it, it's oftentimes a very hard line to toe and or uh, you know, know exactly where the line is drawn. Um, but you know, that, that's part of the learning process and, and evolution of the industry that I think uh, is still uh, um, you know, uh, being undergone by many states right now. So in terms of general health and well-being, would um, uh, anxiety or a restful night's sleep be included in that general health and well-being, or would that be more akin to epilepsy? Uh, I mean, I, I would suggest that anxiety is a condition. Right. Uh, in terms of restful sleep, you know, promoting restful sleep, uh, there are ways to promote that as a limited claim. Um, you know, for example, there are melatonin products on the marketplace, you know, outside of the cannabis industry. Uh, that would not rise to the level of a d disease claim. So the sleep one, I think it could fall on either side of the line depending on how the state interpreted the law. Okay. So let's um, continue down the list of things that you cannot do in Canada and contrast them with the states. Uh, under the Cannabis Act, companies in the cannabis industry can sponsor people, activities, and events, but they cannot promote the fact of sponsorship. So this means that if a licensed producer gives money to the ballet, um, for example, its cannabis brand could not even appear on a donor wall. Uh, what's the state of sponsorship in, in the states? 
Yeah, I, I would suggest that oftentimes it could be very similar to that policy. Again, this is, all, again, on a patchwork state-by-state -state basis. Uh, um, you know, you might notice a theme uh, here, right, that every state is different. But oftentimes there are limits on how you can promote your, your company. As I noted a, a moment ago in terms of billboards, uh, you, in many states they actually use um, kind of a, an, an, an intended audience uh, standard, meaning is your intended audience a majority of uh, consumers that could purchase the product? For example, can you definitively show that how you are marketing uh, or promoting your company, that the uh, intended audience of that mar uh, marketing or promotion is uh, at least 70% or greater of 21-year-olds or up for adult use marijuana? And so that would uh, that would be the case for billboards, for radio advertising, for TV advertising, for sponsorships. That I oftentimes see a lot of uh, standards or regulations put in place around that issue of can you definitively demonstrate that the intended audience is of, a, of such an age uh, that it would be acceptable. Uh, and so Nielsen ratings, for example, for TV ratings could oftentimes be used. And so you're going to see late night advertisements. Um, but uh, and or advertisements and magazines that are very much adult geared. But you're not going to see many daytime advertisements or family-oriented uh, advertisements as well. Uh, so it's not typically on uh, uh, specific to the promotion of sponsorships per se, but it has the same end effect in the sense that unless you can show that that sponsorship uh, is uh, going, you know, that the intended audience of that sponsorship is of such an age um, that you know, it, it, those would be consumers to a dispensary that would generally be prohibited as well. And there's there's no preclearance of advertising, so this would only be if challenged. One, uh, an advertiser would demonstrate that um, the uh, the media is uh, or medium is targeted to adults. Uh, oftentimes, you're exactly right, which is you know I, I think part of the problem. Oftentimes, we find clients that are willing to take the risk because they know. Uh, or think that uh, regulators may not have the resources to kind of uh, uh, look after these issues. So sometimes it's a calcul calculated risk because it's not a pre-promotion review or something like that. So let's take a, a magazine that is skewed to the adult population and uh, circulation evidence proves that. What would it, an advertisement for a cannabis product look like? Is it just a brand element or uh, is there something more? Uh, all the, uh, you know, any of the above. I mean, I mean, it's not going to be any different than what you see. You could have a brand, uh, an advertisement that's promoting a particular promotion at the dispensary, you know, a sale uh, of buy one, get one. Not free. Uh, in many states, you cannot give away free. But, for example, uh, you could sell a second uh, promotional product for a penny, uh, which is effectively free. Um, so you could see, you know, promotion of specific product SKUs. You could see most brand, you know, you could see brand elements where, you know, hey, they're encouraging and, and promoting their brand based upon the usage, right? You know, you talked a moment ago about daring and glamour and recreation. Well, you could see, uh, you know, potential brand element advertisements relating to, uh, you know, consuming uh, marijuana after a long run or uh, after a late night out or, you know, whatever the case might be. Um, it, it's fairly conventional in the way that it's advertised uh, in that setting. Oh, that's interesting because, well, first of all, price and availability is prohibited. So you, uh, 
for, well, you're only allowed to promote cannabis if you're a licensed producer or cultivator. And then those um, within that category, you can't advertise price or availability. So a licensed producer that operates a website couldn't have a drop-down menu in listing the retail stores where its products are available or at what price um, they're being sold at. Which, yeah, I mean, it, it depends uh, on the state. You know, for example, in, in Colorado, like I said, there's no way to uh, buy online, but uh, you can ironically reserve products online. So basically, you could go to a, a website, um, you know, which would be guarded again. Uh, you know, you, there would be a, a click-through ad, uh, not ad, uh, but click-through box where you'd have to attest that you're 21 or over. And then you could get into the, the, pro, uh, the brand's website and reserve products at a specific dispensary. Now, whether they note the price or not, um, you know, might depend on the situation, uh, but effectively it would be a, you know, reserve it now and go pick up, uh, you know, uh, more quickly once you get to the dispensary. And what's considered best practice for age gating? Is it just a single step of month, day, year of your birthday? Or is there a second uh, step verification? Yeah, that, and, and again, that's one of those where it's, very uh, not very frequently challenged, and so oftentimes, yeah, it's just a, either a click through of "Are you greater than 21?" or you know, "Please enter your month to year." Um, but it it largely goes unregulated in many instances. So, uh, and I just want to go back to um, claims because uh, I was at the Can O Cannabis Conference, and one of the speakers mentioned that um, over 90% of uh, Canadians who have purchased recreational cannabis could not tell you what brand that they purchased. And in that same survey, they said that they want information about how the product will make them feel. Um, is that something that can be conveyed to the consumer in more, any of the states? Where you can say this, this may lead to uh, relaxation or, or um, overconsumption can lead to paranoia. What, what are the guidelines there? It's a huge problem and a huge complaint we often see. Um, I, I speak with so many folks in the industry that are just surprised and befuddled as to how uh, that sort of information is basically in the hands of you know, what we call here bud tenders, the people behind the counter right. at the dispensary saying, oh yeah, I tried this, you know, this strain or I tried this product and it did this. That's not you know, that's anecdotal at best. That's not clinical. That's not, uh, uh, you know, certainly for purposes of any therapeutic benefit for medical marijuana. Uh, you're, you're talking about offhand suggestions, just like if you went out to eat and you asked the waitress, you know, what do you like best on the menu? Um, but yet, in this instance or in this scenario, uh, we're effectively not regulating uh, how that, that information is disseminated or by what standard that information is disseminated. In Colorado, it compelled the uh, regulatory agency here last year to issue guidance saying that butt tenders could no longer make suggestions uh, that cannabis could or should be used by pregnant women because it was happening, that uh, there was recommendations being made um, around certain medical conditions, especially for those that, that were suffering from uh, you know, particular complications. And so that, that's a very dangerous or slippery slope to have bud tenders effectively providing medical advice that you would traditionally, um, you know, reserve to having a licensed doctor or other medical practitioner issue. So is that, um, 
is there sort of a lobby then to have uh, the information be available on labels about how, uh, how it will make you feel? Or not, prescribed there's not, there's warnings? There's not a particular lobby against that because, again, you start border, you know, getting borderline on how that relates to you know, the making of medical claims or what the impact or effect of the product is. Uh, I think it's certainly creating a, a, a stronger lobby for how can we research marijuana uh, more effectively and educate consumers generally, not as it relates to specific brands. Because oftentimes, you know, consumers go into a, a dispensary and they don't understand the ratios of cannabinoids, right. THC, CBD, CBC, CBG, all these different cannabinoids and how they might interact with one another. Uh, and so it's a function of consumer education, but we have this chicken and egg situation where there's not enough research out there uh, to, you know, definitively say, well, this sort of product will do this, because oftentimes the experience by uh, consumers will actually vary. Uh, so how do we even standardize that is, I think, the question we have to, to address before we even get to can we put that on the label. So unfortunately, that's an issue that there's not been a great solution to yet uh, or a lobby to yet. I think the first line, uh, first course of action is the um, uh, how do we address the consumer education component um, and the, re you know, the, the lack of definitive research. So Garrett, I want to talk about, uh, we've gone through some of the prohibited means of promoting uh, cannabis in Canada, and I want to talk about a few of the um, permitted activities, and one of which is having your brand element on a thing. Uh, so basically merchandising. Um, so a brand element can appear on a thing, provided that thing is not associated with or appealing to young persons, and the thing is not associated with a way of life. And this has led to some interesting debates about what are allowable things. Is merchandising something that uh, one would see in retail stores in Colorado and other states? Uh, yes, you, you will often see that oftentimes, you know, hats or T-shirts or things like that. Um, you know, so long as it's not uh, food uh, or other things. So, for example, you, you cannot sell consumables in adult use dispensaries in Colorado. Um, uh, you know, uh, as of right now, but you could sell, you know, uh, not drug paraphernalia, but uh, paraphernalia in the sense of T-shirts and, and hats and stuff like that. And has there been any enforcement activity taking the advertisement example? You said an advertisement in adult um, geared magazine would be like any other advertisement that one would see. Has there been enforcement activity against a, an advertisement or a merchandising item for um, going over the line? Or, or being enticing to children? Offhand, you know, I'm sure that there probably is a little bit of precedent, but I would say offhand, I, I can't think of any that comes to mind. Uh, typically, that would be something that would have to be very egregious in nature, uh, and it's probably a very isolated instance of, uh, of enforcement across the state. So I want to get into edibles because uh, edibles are not um, available now, but will be on October uh, 17th. 2019. Draft regulations were published in December for a 60-day consultation period, and we're now just waiting for final regulations. Now, according to the draft regulations that were published, there will be a limit on THC content per package, and that limit is 10 milligrams. Is there a similar limit in the states? Uh, it differs state by state. 
Um, but yes, there are generally limits. So for example, that was my example earlier of the brownie uh, in terms of you know, establishing limits on a per serving or a per edible basis. Uh, so, you know, for example, in Colorado, uh, you can only have up to 10 milligrams per serving, 100 milligrams per uh, product in many instances uh, of THC. Uh, but again, that, that's something that would vary state by state. So you could sell in a single package a brownie with eight serving sizes, uh, and cumulatively they, the content would be more than in the, what the limit is going to be in Canada. So the onus would be on the consumer to cut up. Yeah, and so oftentimes, you know, uh, a serving would actually have to be, you know, uh, split apart already uh, so that it would be easily discernible okay. about one serving is not leaving it to the consumer to do the cutting. Do you know offhand what the, the highest threshold amount is that's allowed of THC per, per milligram? Again, in Colorado, uh, I believe it's 100 milligrams uh, in adult use products. Uh, I'm not sure across the country uh, what other states may exceed that or not. And I believe that there, in all likelihood, that would likely be a medical marijuana state. For some time, there was you know, greater allowances on the medical side. Uh, than there were for uh, marijuana. Now the, or, pro uh, use, the proposed regulations would prohibit all representations that associate cannabis uh, with an alcoholic beverage. So this means that you couldn't uh, describe your edible product as having the taste of beer or being uh, the taste of dealkalized beer. Um, you certainly couldn't have uh, the name or logo of a company that manufactures alcoholic beverages. Uh, you mentioned that there was a similar um, prohibition in the states. Do you want to describe those for us? Yeah, so I think that uh, uh, depends uh, on the state again. Uh, you know, alcohol is typically regulated at the federal level, uh, you know, in the U.S., although there are some corresponding state-level regulators as well. Uh, there are plenty of brands, uh, alcoholic beverage brands, that are getting into the space, whether it, however, it may be through an independently established brand. You know, so for example, uh, Constellation Brands is, of course, uh, involved in the, the space in Canada, uh, and you know other brands have been uh, been very involved uh, in the U.S. as well. Uh, but it may not be under their flagship name, right? So you may not at least initially recognize that it's an alcoholic beverage brand. It's simply a diversification of that parent company's portfolio into the the space. We've certainly seen plenty of uh, questions about you know combining alcohol and tobacco, but there's absolutely been uh, resistance to that by regulators of uh, including uh, alcohol uh, in a marijuana product um, in Colorado a marijuana or a uh, excuse me an alcohol uh, alcoholic beverage uh, would be that with an alcoholic uh, ABV below 0.5 percent so arguably you could put a product out there that has less than 0.5 percent alcohol in it uh, that was also a marijuana product of course, that's not going to have the intended effect of alcohol. You know, that's effectively a kombucha, uh, for example. Right. Um, so yes, there is. You know, there is. There are lines of distinction that are being uh, held and maintained by regulators. Though there are companies that operate across multiple multiple of these spaces, they just simply do so uh, independent of one another, kind of in parallel universes. What is the situation with caffeine? Can that be combined with cannabis? Uh, in, in what sense? Well, can you have an edible that combines caffeine and uh, cannabis? Uh, offhand, I'm not aware of any uh, restriction 
on on that specifically. I believe that there are plenty of products with caffeine in them. Um, you know, there are uh, uh, you know products that are teas and and uh, beverages and whatnot. Uh, that would potentially have caffeine in them. So I'd have to look back uh, any specific examples there, but um, I don't believe that there's been an, an incredible amount of sensitivity to that issue. Our guests today have been Garrett Graff of the Hoban Law Group and Jennifer McKenzie of Breskin and Parr's Toronto office. Information provided during this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Please reach out to Garrett Graff or Jennifer McKenzie directly, and I'm sure they'd be pleased to advise you. You can subscribe to our podcast by visiting breskinpar.com slash podcast. There you can access all the episodes, additional information on each topic, and stay on top of what's happening with IP in Canada. So subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. That way you'll never miss an episode. It's free and it notifies you when you... Blah, 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 blah. Sorry. Why don't you pick up on yeah. so subscribe? So subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. That way you'll never miss an episode. It's free and it notifies you when there's a new one. Thank you for listening to today's episode presented by Breskin and Parr LLP. Until next time.